Well, before we get into the Word tonight, if you were here for our baptism service just a couple of weeks ago, um, precious uh, new believer in Christ, uh, Rachel Baker, if you remember, she's an older lady, just barely could get in and out of the the, the little baptistry there. Uh, She spent the majority of her life uh, abusing her body with substances, came to faith in Christ, went through our membership class, got baptized and all that. She's in the hospital tonight. Um, this is probably her final moments on this earth. Um, so we're going we're gonna to spend just a moment in prayer for her, if that's okay. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you thankful for <clears throat> the 11th hour. How gracious you are to save Rachel. And I don't know if she's even with us yet now. Her family is there saying goodbye. How gracious you were to bring her to the cross literally in the last weeks and months of her life. Lord, we pray for her family. This is devastating. This is, uh, they certainly, I'm sure, wanted to enjoy the new Rachel, the Rachel that's in Christ. But you were calling her. And so we trust you. But Lord, it, from our vantage point, it's hard. It is difficult. We praise you, Lord, for her profession of faith. We praise you for the time she took to write out her testimony. We praise you for the time she took to even go through our membership class and to be presented as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ to give her testimony and to enter the waters of baptism. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to be with her family. We ask you, Lord, to... Comfort them in this time. Your will is perfect. We trust you. We trust you even with the hurts that we endure. We ask you, Lord, to make her passing simple and sweet and that she would go home very, very peacefully. We pray that this would be for the sake of the family, for her sake, Lord. We just praise you again that another saint will enter heaven. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Makes me a little emotional, I'm sorry. That's uh, the way this is. The question I wanted to talk about tonight is worship. And specifically, I wanted to talk about kind of a self-analysis. And the question would be, are you a true worshiper of Christ? Are you a true worshiper? I think it's reasonable to ask that question. The Apostle Paul asked, the believers in Corinth, the same question. He said in 2 Corinthians thirteen five to examine yourselves, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And so I don't feel bad asking established believers, are you a true worshiper? I'd rather somebody share the gospel with me a thousand times, needlessly because I'm saved, than the other way around. Are you a true worshiper of Christ? When given the option to go quietly with the crowds who... Submit to the world, will you tell yourself, well, my faith is private anyway? Or will you stand? Will you refuse to bow to the conventions and pressures and political correctness of the world systems? This is tender for us right now. When the government demands allegiance over and above your loyalty to God, what will you do? We saw a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning that that very question is very real for us. It is very real. Does the government get to make rules for Christians 
in, in terms of how we worship. So, are you a true worshiper of Christ? Jesus Christ himself said that if you're his, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, you follow him. By the way, taking up your cross in the first century didn't mean anything symbolic. It meant to go die. There was no other meaning. It didn't mean to have a big electric bill. It didn't mean to be saddled with a difficult relationship. It meant, are you willing to go die? The question of being a true child of God, a true worshiper, one who's truly his, this question had to be answered by three of God's men. And they had no time to think about this. They had no time to ponder theological ideas. They had no time to read some books. They simply had to decide right at that moment. And in that fateful moment, these three men decided and they proved themselves to be children of the living God, saved men who would serve God no matter the cost. These three were bound and were moments away from their execution because of their faith. They were sentenced to be burned alive. And they even had a chance to save their own lives. But they refused and they chose to trust God instead. And of course, we're talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I think they probably would have been preferred to be called by the Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, all from the tribe of Judah. And so that brings us to Daniel chapter 1. We'll end up in Daniel chapter 3, but Daniel chapter 1, we're going to begin there tonight as we continue looking at the various interactions of the angel of the Lord, the pre-Bethlehem Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see now is that he's going to intervene on behalf of three of his faithful men. And his purpose will be singular, and that is to save true worshipers. To save true worshipers. Now, we have to set up the history here a little bit, and and I know you all enjoy history. So, um, in 605 B.C., one guy ruled the whole world, basically, King Nebuchadnezzar. The powerful Babylonians had joined with the Medes and the Scythians, and they they had stunned the ancient world at the Battle of Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar crushed the combined armies of Assyria and Egypt. And this wasn't just a little defeat where they went home with their tail between their legs. Assyria ceased to exist in one day as an independent power. Egypt did go home to lick its wounds, but the Babylonian Empire now is the predominant power in the ancient Near East, controlling about 120 provinces or nations. It was a vast, vast empire. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't stop there. He came south and he defeated a little nation called Judah in 605, the southern kingdom of Judah, essentially making it a vassal state at that point. Now, Judah wasn't going to go down quietly and Nebuchadnezzar had to return two more times. He came back in 597 BC and the final time in 586 when he would destroy Jerusalem and lay waste to the whole land all around the city, making it basically uninhabitable. But at this first conquest in 605 B.C., the the discipline of God on Judah for her covenant treachery against God, Babylon carried off the best and the brightest of the youth of Judah, including four teenagers named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Because all of them came from noble or royal families of Israel, they were chosen to be educated for three years in the language and culture of Babylon in order to stand before the king and to serve him. That brings us to Daniel chapter 1 near the end at verse 18. Daniel chapter 1 verse 18. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. 
And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. Well, apparently during this training period, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. This dream was given to him by God in chapter 2. Daniel was brought in not just to interpret the dream, but to tell the king what the dream was with only help from God. This dream gave us the first future prophecy from Daniel. Chapter 2, all the way in verse 31. Chapter 2, verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now Daniel interprets the dream. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Now, Daniel goes on to explain that each section of the statue represented an empire that was to come. And it came true just as Daniel had said. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, was in power currently, the head of gold. A few decades later came the Medo-Persian Empire taking control. After that, the Greeks. And after that, the Romans. The Romans are pictured at the bottom as the the toes, so to speak. The Roman Empire, or some look-alike version of it, will be revived someday And what will happen then? The stone will strike the image and fill the whole earth. What is this stone? Look at verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. The focus of this prophecy is the coming rule of Christ on earth. But apparently, all Nebuchadnezzar could focus on was, hey, I'm the head of gold. As a reward, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were appointed to high government posts locally in the province of Babylon. They were in the capital of the empire, so to speak. Now, why would we say that apparently all Nebuchadnezzar focused on was himself as the head of gold in this prophetic statue? Chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So let's use this story to demonstrate God's ultimate salvation of true worshipers that nothing in this life can take away the spiritual protection of God over those who have trusted Christ. 
And so here's kind of how we'll do this. This drama is going to explain what it means to live in a wicked world as believers in Christ. Yes, we look forward to the the coming kingdom as true worshipers, but we live in a wicked world. And what we're going to see here is a predictable pattern that our lives may follow in a world still given over to Satan. So we're going to break this down into elements of living in a wicked world as a true worshiper of Christ. We'll do five or six of them here. The first element of living in the wicked world as a true worshiper, a tyrant demands worship. A tyrant demands worship. And I'll repeat these as we go because they'll become even more important later. A tyrant demands worship. So King Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image of gold that's 90 feet high and about 9 feet wide. So it's very tall, very skinny. Now traditionally this is portrayed as a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself. But the word for image here is broad enough that it doesn't have to be a a human image. It can just be any sort of statue. It may have been more of an obelisk, just a a tall, uh, flat uh, sort of statue that you could etch things on. And what would happen, as he knew the Egyptians had done, is that they would etch uh, the stories of his achievements. And that may have been what it was. Some have even theorized that there is a golden head on top, just like the dream that he had. In any case, the image is meant to represent Nebuchadnezzar. He's placed himself in the position of a god. Now, it would have been an impressive sight. It's about the size of an eight-story building completely overlaid in gold. And he set up this image on the plain of Dura. Now, Dura was just a common name in Mesopotamia for any place surrounded by mountains. It's any sort of valley. So we could say the Dura of Dura or the plain of plain. And so it's just saying what kind of uh, area it is. It's just a big, big, flat area. It would have been close to the city of Babylon to make it a central feature of the empire. Interestingly, six miles uh, southeast of Babylon, archaeologists found a giant square of brick, a brick foundation right in the middle of nowhere in a giant valley right in the middle. And they think that that's the most likely site for this statue, the base of the image. So you have this image set up surrounded by a vast, empty space. Why is that? Well, this was space that was meant to be filled with people, with worshipers. Verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Nebuchadnezzar calls eight levels of officials to the dedication of this image. What was this? Well, this was intended to symbolize the whole empire and to unify them in total loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. These officials were representatives of all 120 provinces of the Babylonian Empire. The the satraps would have been probably the highest official of each province with the lower officials coming with them from all over the ancient Near East. So this was a massive convocation. We'll put it this way, it's the governments of 120 nations all coming together. And so they're all gathered to do one thing, to swear allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, even to the point of worship. Verse 4. 
And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So all these instruments there, you have a full orchestra, basically. The bagpipes, I guess they took over Scotland also, I'm not sure. No one knows what that word actually means. They just kind of put bagpipe in there. It could be two or three different instruments. But by bowing down to the image, these officials were declaring their total allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar as their highest form of authority. That was never God's will for government. Now, for the believer in Christ, there's nothing wrong with giving your allegiance to your nation. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. That's okay. We're called to be loyal to our nation, but never are we called to make loyalty to the nation as the highest form of our authority. Never. What Nebuchadnezzar is doing is combining political authority with religious authority. And for the worshiper of God, this absolutely cannot be. It can't be. Nebuchadnezzar was declaring himself head of state and head of religion. I don't know if you know this, but in the early 1930s when Adolf Hitler took over Germany, very early on he made aggressive moves to infiltrate the churches. He did this by putting his own men into the ministerial associations all around Germany. It, almost overnight, the, there were 75% of the ministerial associations were now populated and churches pastored by men on the payroll of the Third Reich. Why did he do this? Because he declared himself political and religious authority and all over Germany you saw crosses with swastikas on them and pastors and priests giving the, the chilling Heil Hitler salute. Back here in our text, notice how this was giving the trappings of worship an entire orchestra assembled, brass and woodwinds and strings. In it, from a worldly sense, it would have been a glorious sight. The sound of amazing music and, and people as far as the eye can see. Now for us, living in a wicked world as a true worshiper means we have to be on the lookout for rulers, tyrants who demand worship. Now it may not be as overt as having to bow down to an image, not yet. But when the wickedness and immorality of those rulers is shoved down your throat as a twisted new morality, when laws are passed that say you must follow this law to show yourself to be moral, when it's something that's not moral one way or another, that if you're evil, if you don't support abortion, you're evil if you don't support gender inclusiveness, social justice, a centralized government, now you're portrayed as an enemy of the state. And we said this a couple of weeks ago, but Christianity is is by its very nature a faith that promotes freedom because we worship God, not the government. And so the government holds a tenuous hold. They are to protect us. They are to provide safety. And that's really about it. Not health, not education. The government exists to do one thing, kill bad people. Read Genesis 9. And now when the government turns into the tyrant, this is when we have to be aware why do liberals fight so hard to portray, for example, public education as the only way to educate your kids? It has nothing to do with education. By the way, that system is failing massively. It's because they can form the minds of students into their own twisted belief system. Do you know one of the first things that Hitler did was to form the Hitler Youth Organization? 
and children who didn't want to join were persecuted, were beaten, were ostracized. Anything that demands your allegiance to the level of worship is playing the role of a tyrant who demands worship. That's what we live with in this world. So the first element of living in a wicked world as a true worshiper is a tyrant who demands worship. The second element of living in a wicked world as a true worshiper, those who refuse to worship will be persecuted. Those who refuse to worship will be persecuted. Verse 6, here's the catch. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. A furnace big enough to throw lots and lots of people into it would have been massive. Why is there a giant furnace out in the middle of nowhere, out in the middle of the the plain of Dura? Well, the furnace was likely built out in the valley for the construction of the base, the making of the bricks, the melting down of gold for the image. And so it was there for construction. And now it was made into a horrific execution chamber for any who would not bow down. There's no time to think, no time to ponder, no time to ask opinion. The immediate choice was given and failure to worship the image was penalized by an instant death sentence. Now, what does this mean? It means you'd better be very, very clear in your heart and in your mind precisely where your allegiance lies long before you're called to make that choice. Before the command to worship a tyrant of any kind comes down. This is, by the way, partly what baptism helps you accomplish. You've publicly declared your allegiance to Christ. It gives you a moment to look back on and say, that was the moment I told everybody in my church that I follow Christ. You declare your fidelity to Christ and to Christ alone. It's a moment for you to reflect back on, not as the moment of your salvation, obviously, but as the time you declared your total resoluteness as a child of the living God. And listen, the more in love with the world systems you become, the more fuzzy those lines become for us. And that's a danger. It's a spiritual danger. The more your faith begins to function as a footnote in your life, the more you may be prone to waver and waffle when the chance to be loyal to Christ arises. I've lost track of the number of pastors that have told me that when coronavirus hit and their churches had to shut down and they started opening up again, there were entire families that just never came back because they showed themselves to be unbelievers. You remember Jesus' words to the suffering church at Smyrna? Revelation 2.10, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The elements of living in the wicked world. A tyrant demands worship. Those who refuse to worship will be persecuted. The third element of living in the wicked world as a true worshiper. Most people will bow to the tyrant. Most people will bow to the tyrant. I can say this as a word of application before we even get into the text. When most of the world believes something, don't follow them. It's that simple. When the church of Jesus Christ as a whole is going down a specific road, they're probably not going down the right road. That is just a good rule to live by. Verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, uh, horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every type of kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
this horde of representatives of the whole empire was overwhelmed by the command, by the sheer awesome sight of the image, the loud music, the the vast crowd, the pomp and circumstance. And like the millions and millions who have saluted tyrants throughout the ages, they bowed down. And this is when the true worshipers of God are separated from the false. Now, I want to just give you a little side note here. I really couldn't think of a good place to put this, but it was so interesting to me, I had to just stick it in. There's a silent lesson here that we can extrapolate from other places in Scripture, and it's the lesson of Zedekiah. King Zedekiah, his story is told in 2 Kings 24 and 2 Chronicles 36. He was the last king of Judah, the very last one. Judah now is essentially a vassal state under Nebuchadnezzar. Judah capitulated to Nebuchadnezzar, as we said, in 605 B.C. Zedekiah was made king, really just a governor under Babylon's rule in 597. The biblical record shows Zedekiah to be a failed king who did not serve the Lord and who vacillated. Now, eventually, he would attempt sort of a little rebellion against Babylon, but it was ill-fated. He was captured. His sons were murdered in front of him. He was blinded and taken captive to Babylon. All this just at the age of 32. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar had had enough and he destroyed Jerusalem, carried off most of the rest of the people of Judah and Jerusalem while slaughtering many, many more. But a few years prior to this, Zedekiah, the vassal king of Judah under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, was summoned to Babylon. Why was he summoned to Babylon? There's a very strong case that Zedekiah was summoned the exact same year that the golden image was set up. In other words, Zedekiah, the king of Judah, was there on the plain of Dura. He was one of the satraps, the governors, or vassal kings, who was called to bow down to the image and forsake allegiance to any god but Nebuchadnezzar. And do we see him anywhere in this text? No. Why? Because he bowed down. He chose to save his own life. He chose to forsake the god of his fathers, the god of Israel, the god who would have protected him had he but been faithful. Most people will bow to the tyrant, even those who have professed to follow God. So we have a tyrant who demands worship. Those who refuse to worship will be persecuted. Most people will bow down to the tyrant. There's a fourth element of living in a wicked world as a true worshiper. A small remnant will refuse to worship. A small remnant will refuse to worship. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans those are Babylonians, came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Now, this gathering included all the officials from the 120 provinces. It would have been massive, but advisors to Nebuchadnezzar are quick to bring a severe accusation against the Jews that he had placed in high position. This translation, maliciously accused, is a good one. It means to tear to pieces. The intent is not to come to some sort of resolution. The intent is simply to destroy the person you're accusing. They were motivated by jealousy as these Jews had been placed in high positions over many ethnic Babylonians. And by the way, normally from people from defeated states such as Judah weren't put in high roles in government. They were slaves and servants. But these guys are in high positions of government. Now these counselors are trying to pander to Nebuchadnezzar by contrasting their own obedience to bow down with the refusal of the Jews to bow to the image. And by the way, a little side note, you may be asking, hey, where's Daniel, by the way? Nobody knows. 
Uh, one theory is that he was also there and didn't bow down, but he was too high up in the government to challenge. Another is that he was so high up that he wasn't among those required to bow. He'd already won the confidence of Nebuchadnezzar. But God chooses not to tell us because Daniel is not the focus of this story. His three friends are. Again, verse 8, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? There's the key question of the whole event. Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar now considered himself above all the gods. He claimed absolute political authority, absolute religious power and authority like so many tyrants throughout history. Well, this is a whole new ball of wax now. Now this has become a conflict between Nebuchadnezzar and Yahweh himself. The God of Israel and the creator of all things, the one true living God. And now the tension builds because the three men have been given a second chance. But listen to their answer. It's rich. It's faithful. So indicative of truly saved men who worship God and God alone. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Look at how they trust God, though. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They showed total confidence in God, that God absolutely could deliver them, but they didn't presume on God either. This great statement of faith that they're saying whether God delivers them or not, they will not forsake their God. They trusted God's sovereign plan, even if it meant their deaths. They joined the ranks of great men like Job, who said of God in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wholesale rejected Nebuchadnezzar's threats. They meant nothing to him. They rejected his claim to a place which only God may occupy. So a small remnant will refuse to worship. A tyrant demands worship. Those who refuse to worship will be persecuted. Most people will bow to the tyrant. A small remnant will refuse to worship. There's a fifth element of living in a wicked world as a true worshiper. Many who refuse to worship will be punished. Many who refuse to worship will be punished. Verse 19 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Seven times more, seven times hotter. It's not actually possible to measure this. Obviously, the hottest that an ancient furnace could have gotten is around 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. I think that's plenty hot. But this is emblematic of his drunkenness with his own power, his, his desire to be on top of everything, his own furious anger. Verse 20, And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, this is important. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. The king ordered his mightiest soldiers to tie these men up, throw them into the furnace. This huge furnace would have had an opening on the top where you put in fuel, and then also an opening on the side as well to take out uh, whatever product you're heating up in there or the, the ashes and so forth. But the text here in verse 21 says that the men were fully clothed. This is important because it shows the, the fury and the haste with which Nebuchadnezzar wanted them killed. In the ancient world, criminals generally were stripped naked to be executed. And he, he wants them executed now. He wanted them dead now. He wanted them to be made an example of now. This was to be, of course, a grand show to this vast convocation in this valley. This is what happens when you disobey the king. And how hot was the flame? Verse 22, I hope they have health insurance. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The soldiers who were throwing the Jews into the fire were set ablaze by the flames shooting out the top of the furnace what a terrifying scene these human torches running around screaming as they're on fire horrifying meanwhile verse 23 and these three men shadrach meshach and abednego fell bound into the burning fiery furnace daniel just keeps us in suspense doesn't he To be sentenced to die for true faith in God has been the fate of countless millions of those who follow Christ. It continues to be so today, by the way. Every year, thousands of believers are killed for their faith. Thousands of more are detained without a fair trial. They're imprisoned. Churches are attacked. Churches are destroyed. In the Western culture, it's just more subtle still. In the top 10 countries for persecution, seven of them are listed as the primary cause of persecution being Islamic oppression. The number of, category, the number of countries rather categorized by one organization as engaging in what they rate as extreme, extreme persecution. Five years ago, they rated one of them as extreme, North Korea. Today, they rate 11. That's called exponential growth of persecution. Just a few years ago, before a long-awaited regime change in Sudan, Christians were being lashed. They were being hung. Churches closed down. Random attacks on Christians in villages. In the past century alone, Christians have died under dictators. Men like Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler... Chiang Kai-shek, 
who between them not only murdered Christians, but killed a total of approximately 167 million people. Just those four. But Satan is smart and crafty. We don't have to be in a dictatorship to see Christians oppressed at all. The tools of oppression are simply different. Laws of so-called health and safety. Media control, which hates Christians. A watering down of the very purpose of the church so that professing Christians are a thorn in the side of the true church. In America, Christians aren't dying for their faith, but you know there are 65 million people we could have invited to church and we never had the chance because our government has allowed and promoted the murder of unborn babies. Now just to put this in perspective, one nation under God? I don't know. The worst dictator in history in terms of how many people he killed was Mao Zedong of China. He's estimated to have killed between 45 and 75 million of his own people. In a very short time, the United States of America will go down in history as having murdered more people than that maniac did. So if you believe that being a true worshiper of God through faith in Christ is a risk-free commitment, can I just tell you that history and current events would prove otherwise? You don't worship Christ to be safe. You worship Christ to be saved. You catch the difference? This world is not safe for us, except in Christ. But in this particular case, back in the valley near Babylon, God chose to do something special. A tyrant demands worship. Those who refuse to worship will be persecuted. Most people will bow to the tyrant. A small remnant will refuse to worship. Many who refuse to worship will be punished. One more, the sixth element of living in a wicked world as a true worshiper, but some will be delivered by the coming of Christ. Some will be delivered by the coming of Christ. Back when Nebuchadnezzar proclaimed, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? I imagine that it was about at that moment that in the heavenly throne room, God the Father said to God the Son, go show Nebuchadnezzar the God who will deliver my worshipers from his hands. And enter now the pre-Bethlehem son of the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ, known in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. There are four men. None of them are tied up with ropes. And they're walking around. They're going for a stroll. This must have been some furnace. What was Nebuchadnezzar seeing in this fourth man? Matthew's gospel, chapter 17, tells us. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. The Apostle John tells us what they saw. Revelation 1, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's what Nebuchadnezzar saw. 
Well, the tune changes just a little bit. I don't know if Nebuchadnezzar told the orchestra to be quiet, but he needed to say something. Verse 26, And Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their clothes were not cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Did you hear what Nebuchadnezzar is calling God now? He identifies these men as servants of the Most High God. Now, make no mistake, this is not a statement of faith on Nebuchadnezzar's part. He's simply acknowledging that their belief in God as the Most High God seems to have paid off, at least in this instance. And now, you remember the little detail of these men being thrown into the fire with their clothes on? Shows that God thinks of every detail. God already planned to save them, and very kindly, He didn't make them walk out of the furnace in their birthday suits. They came out fully clothed and in fact their clothing served as a witness of just how perfectly the salvation of God was accomplished. Not even their clothes smelled like smoke. I mean, I don't know about you, but you can walk through a grocery store parking lot and somebody's smoking a hundred yards away and you have to wash your clothes. What a picture of our salvation in Christ, by the way, that the forgiveness of sin offered by God by means of the shed blood of the Savior is Such a perfect salvation. The fire of the judgment of God will never touch you. Like the hair of these three men, you won't be singed by even a single sin you've ever committed. And like the clothing of these men, there won't be even the smell of the sins which you have committed. Christ has utterly and completely saved us. And when you're thrown into the furnace of your own death, when that moment comes to face your own end, you will find waiting for you the glorious Savior who will walk with you and walk you out of the furnace which cannot harm you, cannot touch you, cannot even sting a little bit. And you will say, like Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your sting? Well, even Nebuchadnezzar had to admit that the God of Israel had prevailed. Verse 28 Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. And you think, well, Nebuchadnezzar's making a little progress here, isn't he? Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses their houses laid in ruins, and there's, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. I guess the old saying is true, once a tyrant, always a tyrant. You, know, you worship the true God, or I'm going to pull your arms off. That's a nice gesture, not exactly what we're looking for. And in a little bit of sweet irony, every once in a while in the Bible, there, there are little beautiful vindications where you go, oh, that was good. And this is one of them. Remember the jealousy of the officials who had pointed out the three men to Nebuchadnezzar? I wonder how they felt about this. In verse 30, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. They didn't have any smoke on them, but I guarantee you there was smoke coming out the ears of those jealous men. Well, 
Later, Nebuchadnezzar would write a letter to all peoples under his dominion, a letter of a very humbling lesson God taught him. This letter is contained in Daniel 4. I'll just mention the event which precipitated the further intervention of God. Daniel interpreted a dream Nebuchadnezzar had and in a nutshell told him that when Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself one more time, God would make him like an animal for seven years. One year later, Daniel chapter 4, verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, now first of all, what's he answering? He's answering his own thoughts. Why am I so great? Why am I so wonderful? These questions. And he answered himself and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. What did Nebuchadnezzar think of God seven years later? Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Now, did you catch this? You remember the arrogant question that Nebuchadnezzar asked the three men before throwing them into the furnace? Chapter 3, verse 15. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Enter the angel of the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, to answer that question. And now Nebuchadnezzar gives glory to God. Verse 35. None can stay his hand. He used to think none could stay his own hand. He's abandoned that. He has been humbled. One last thing. This episode on the plain of Dura has a prophetic layer to it. It paints a micro picture of a time that's coming to our world. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And at that moment, as all the living saints of God are taken up into heaven, the end times clock begins ticking. What happens then? First, a tyrant will demand worship. 
Daniel 9.27 says that the prince will come and make a seven-year treaty, a covenant with Israel, and reinstitute sacrifices in Israel. Israel will believe that their Messiah has come. They'll believe it. Daniel 7 tells us that this leader will lead a ten-nation alliance, something like a Roman Empire. Remember the, the, the ten alliance nations at the bottom of the statue in chapter 2? And at first, this leader, this person, will bring peace to the world. Revelation 6.2 calls him a rider on a white horse with a bow but no arrows. He's not violent. And a crown is given to him. He didn't take it. It's given to him. The world says, lead us. But then, Daniel 9.27 says that after three and a half years of peace, he will break covenant with Israel. He'll stop all the sacrifices. He'll set himself up to be worshipped instead. What Daniel and Jesus call the abomination that causes desolation Revelation 6.2 says that he will begin conquering. And at this time, God will begin raining judgments down on the earth known as the Great Tribulation. But God will also be raising up new believers. Remember, the church has already been taken into heaven. They're not there. They're never mentioned from chapter 4 all the way through 17 or so. But he's raising up new believers. People literally being saved from every nation on earth. And as a bonus, God will even raise up 144,000 Jewish believers protected by God, proclaiming Christ. Revelation 7, Revelation 14 tells us this. But then Revelation 13, verse 1 says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems, crowns on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. This beast is the Antichrist leading the ten nations. It will in some fashion simulate its own death and resurrection in order to demand worship. What's the second thing that's going to happen? Those who refuse to worship will be persecuted. Those who refuse to worship will be persecuted. A great image of the beast will be constructed by the false prophet who's promoting the beast. Revelation 13, 15 through 17 says it was allowed to give image, uh, give breath rather to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So an image is set up in order to be worshipped. Third, most people will bow to the tyrant. Most people will bow to the tyrant. Revelation 13 continues, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. What happens next? A small remnant refuses to worship. Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then believing Israel, this remnant of the Jews called in Revelation 12, the woman who had given birth to Christ will be protected. Revelation 12, 14, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. In other words, for three and a half more years. What happens next? Fifth, many who refuse to worship will be punished. Satan himself will directly lead the charge. Called the, he's called the serpent and the dragon to go after these Jewish believers who, is, who are escaping the terror of Antichrist. 
Revelation 12, 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And so Satan is now infuriated that these remnant, this remnant is protected. So the dragon, Satan, turns his sights on the other new believers on earth. Revelation twelve seventeen. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. By the way, this is at the same time we see in heaven the scene in Revelation 6 of the tribulation martyrs, the countless believers killed for their faith and they're crying out for justice and God is telling them, be patient, justice is coming soon. What happens last? Some will be delivered by the coming of Christ. A great battle will be taking place. Antichrist and his forces coming against Jerusalem. Zechariah 14. We read about a lot of this last week. Revelation 16 verse 16. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The believers still on earth who have survived the onslaught of Antichrist will look up and they'll see something wonderful. Zechariah 14.3 says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. A few verses later, this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And what will Christ do? This is a terrifying scene. Revelation fourteen twenty says, The winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia let me translate that the coming of christ will splatter the blood of his enemies for 200 miles this high that's a massive invasion and then what happens zechariah 14 9 and the lord will be king over all the earth on that day the lord will be one and his name one do you see that daniel chapter 3 provides us with a miniature picture of God's coming victory over the wicked of all the earth. But first, there is suffering that takes place. We have to endure. By the way, are you seeing as we've gone through the angel of the Lord all through the Old Testament that the ministry of the angel of the Lord is pushing more and more and more toward Christ's future reign? The last message we do on the angel of the Lord, that's all it's about, is Christ's future reign. So when we started all the way back in Genesis 16, we've moved our way into Daniel 3. The ministry of the angel of the Lord is preparing the way for his own rule on earth. What's your job? We wait on the Lord. You be faithful. You serve Christ in obedience to his commands. Look eagerly to the heavens. And first, God will gather his saints. And then seven years later, you'll return with him as he conquers what is rightfully his, and you'll be right with him. You'll be right there with him. 
My prayer is that you'll be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you'll trust your Savior even to the point of your own death. And then we'll see all these glorious things unfold and how wonderful that day will be. Are you a true worshiper of Christ? If you're not, all you will see is the judging hand of God at the great white throne. If you are, everything we just talked about becomes your inheritance, a glorious thing. You will be the ones returning with Christ and coming to an earth recently conquered. You'll be the ones saying, wow, what a mess. You'll be the ones, Revelation 20 says, will be set up to reign with him. Are you a true believer in Christ? I don't think it hurts to continue asking that question and to be certain that you know the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray for that certainty because you will, as the angel of the Lord did, save true worshipers. I pray for any hearing this message, Lord, that maybe have been playing church, maybe have been faking it and and fooled themselves into thinking that because they've done churchy things, because they like the Bible, because they've seeing God work in certain ways because they they sort of like hanging around Christians and they enjoy the life of the church. Hebrews chapter 6 says it's possible to do all of those things and yet remain outside the faith. And so I pray, Lord, particularly that you would pierce the heart of the one who has fooled himself, the one who has fooled herself, and that there would be a, a grand repentance while there is still time. But there will be a day when grace stops and grace comes to an end for the the world. Grace will certainly continue for all of us, but there will be a time when you stop offering salvation. And so, Lord, I would pray that while there is time, while the golden images are set up all over the world and people bowing down to them wholesale, and yet we still have time, I pray, Lord, that we would see more come to faith in Christ and refuse to bow, refuse to give worship falsely and give worship only to the one who deserves it, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.